Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Banter on the Parkway. I am your host, Brian, from BannersOnTheParkway.com. We are here on the 847th day of February, recording after Xavier last night uh, lost to St. John's. So this is going to be a bit of a therapy session. Hope you're ready. Uh, I am joined by the bald skip Bayless. Uh, Brad, how are you doing? That's that's actually pretty insulting, really. I, well, here's the thing. You've been fired up on the group chat, and so I'm assuming that the takes are going to be pretty hot on here. So I'm just prepping everybody. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, it's good to say. Um, we've also got the bald, I don't know, like James Joyce. I don't know. You've been like just super depressed. <laughs> I'm assuming you're talking about me since Braden has hair. Uh, you remind me of a an exceptionally bawdy poem I read that was attributed to James Joyce. Um, but I don't know if he actually wrote it or not. But since this is a family program, I am going to just not quote it to you and instead say hello and welcome. And just like it's the 287th day or whatever of February, that's approximately how long Xavier likes to go between basketball games. Goodness sake. It's like three weeks since Xavier won. It's longer than that since the sun's been out, I think. Um, oh, and Braden's here. Hey, Braden, what's up? <laughs> uh, right. Not a whole lot. Yeah, Been we didn't get in there, through, though. Didn't get all the way through intros before we derailed again. Um, so, whoops. You guys must have been much more on task last week. I'm just kidding. I heard that. What the frick were you talking about mountaineering for? Um, it's college <laughs> basketball. Yes. And we're going to talk about college basketball, no matter how depressing it gets. Um, a little news from around the country that's not depressing, actually kind of funny. Uh, Duke and uh, University of Cincinnati both lost players this week uh, as Jalen Johnson and Zach Harvey both opted out of the remainder of the season. Now, here's the thing with Jalen Johnson is he's uh, NBA draft pick next year, probably a lottery pick uh, from what I've read. Zach Harvey is an interesting case, though, because he had not, like, cracked Cincinnati's rotation um, if he's leaving for the draft. Uh, I mean, I'm not an agent, but I am a person who can read statistics, and I think it's a bad idea. Uh, Joel, do you know if there's, like, something else going on here with Zach Harvey? I mean, Johnson is pretty obvious because he has a foot injury. He doesn't want to risk aggravating that risk his future in the NBA um no matter what John Rothstein very piously tweets at him um what's the deal with Zach Harvey though um so first off Zach Harvey isn't getting drafted unless we go to war I don't know uh, where he's hoping to land uh I think his off court issues have been well enough documented that we don't need to go too deep into that except to say that he was a uh High top 100 guy, five-star prospect out of high school. And there's a reason he landed at UC after committing to Kansas at one point in time. Uh, you know, it's I don't think it's fair to say that he never got his legs under him because he played really well in the time that he got to play. He was 10 of 16 from behind the arc in conference games this year. Uh, he had a 126-0 rating in that time. I don't know if he just now thinks that he's too good for Cincinnati and wants to go somewhere, you know, better since they uh, they were kind of his door back into college basketball, and uh, now he's moved on from that. Or if he just didn't like playing for John Branham. Uh, it's a mystery to me. Like you said, the, the biggest news is Duke losing Jalen Johnson. That brought out the the hot take artists on Twitter, uh, calling him a quitter and whatnot. Uh, you know, whatever. Do you, Jalen Johnson? The only thing he had by playing the rest of the game was potential loss. Uh, like you said, he's he's a lottery pick. He's put enough on tape, and he's going to be drafted on what he does in workouts and what teams think his potential is. Uh, it makes no sense for him to go out there and just continue to 
uh, perform for the entertainment of people who aren't going to pay his bills if one of his legs falls off during a game. So uh, John Rothstein can go back to sending out the same scheduled tweets every morning and uh, fluffing every coach who gives him access to practice. And Jalen Johnson's going to make a whole ton of money next year. Yep. Uh, that's kind of when I saw that tweet, I got, not gonna lie, I got a little angry because, um, that was just, it's posturing. Like, you don't know what's going on with the kid's foot. Leave them alone. Um, anyway, uh, Brad, the NCAA tournament has some travel requirements that are fairly stringent and we're going to get later into whether Xavier will have to worry about that or not. Um, but what, what are those? Um, and if I do, um, you know, if, if my high school coach finally does send out my tapes and I do get the D1 scholarship I deserve, uh, what am I going to have to do to be eligible for the tournament? Uh, well, the first thing that kind of jumped out to me is that it, the teams that are busing to the tournament, the bus driver is not allowed to speak to the players unless there is an emergency on the bus. And I just thought that's a really strange requirement like he i guess he just is supposed to stare straight ahead as they file on um a lot of the guys that drove our bus in high school it would have been a blessing if they'd have quit talking so maybe the ncaa is just looking for a reason to finally slide that in there uh, the same goes for teams that are flying the flight staff and the pilots are not to talk to the players or the tier one personnel as they come onto the airplane so i guess they'll exchange manly nods as they walk to their seats, those seats will be staggered. Um, you're not going to be sitting next to your buddy. If Colby Jones and Paul Scruggs are used to sharing a set of uh, earbuds, they're going to have to either go wireless or come up with a new plan. Um, you, The seats are staggered, so they will be sitting one per row, every other row. So very spread out on either the bus or plane that they're on. Um, players, once they get to their tournament site, will all have their own room. When they aren't at practice, at meals, or playing games, they will be in their rooms by themselves. When they come to meals, they will be assigned seats and spread out across wherever it is that they're eating. Um, so it's come to the NCAA tournament and enjoy absolutely none of the usual festivities that go with the NCAA tournament. Uh, you can't even sit with your boys for a meal. Uh, it's going to be different, hopefully, the guys who are there still uh, playing the games, and hopefully we still get the games in. But those travel requirements are strict. They're encouraging every team to stay at their conference site until they find out if they've made the tournament. Um, that's going to be a little bit challenging for some of the mid-majors that are hoping to be two-bid leagues. Um, the MVC, for example, they're going to have an auto bid and then another team that's going to think that they have a chance to get in out of there. Uh, if that team is supposed to just sit then at the conference tournament site for a week and wait, uh, that's what the NCAA is asking them to do. That is a little difficult. Or I guess they can pile onto their bus, not speak with the driver, and then wait from across the aisle and staggered from each other. It's going to be. It's going to look a lot different. The seating arrangement on the bench is going to be a lot like what you see Xavier doing now. Um, masks and everything spread out. Uh, it It's going to be unusual, but that's the plan. It does seem like they have it set up to create bubbles to keep the teams safe while they're playing. So hopefully the games will get in. It's just not going to have that usual tournament atmosphere that we're used to. So if I can jump in here, uh, obviously the stand at the sites for mid-majors and other teams hoping to get an at-large bid, I assume the NCAA has a plan for how much class the student-athletes are going to miss because that's obviously the student part comes first. So it's going to be important. The other thing is uh, the bus reminded me, Brian and I have a fun bus story from college. <laughs> I'm thinking about that. I was a uniform spectator on our uh, college baseball team. Brian didn't have a uniform, but got to play just as much. And uh, he also did our radio broadcast. We were heading to Atlanta to open the season my senior year. And we went down, we played some team. Something happened in the game. On the way home, home back to the the hotel brian and i were sharing a set of headphones colby jones and paul scruggs style and driving along not paying any attention when we get surrounded by jeeps with emergency lights on them so uh, we made sure each other was paying attention now and these cars 
uh, just like boxed in the bus and brought it to a stop. And then armed agents came storming onto the bus. I thought, holy cow, uh, I've been drafted. It wasn't that. Our bus driver had somehow driven us onto the runway of a small airport in Atlanta, which hacked them off to no end. So they sent their dudes out. We ended up getting like a Jeep escort off of the tarmac for obvious reasons back onto the highway. He was so flustered. He then drove past our exit. So as one does on the interstate, just brought the bus to a halt and reversed us to the exit ramp. Somehow we didn't die. We got back to the hotel and uh, our coach got off first and kissed the ground in the parking lot. And then we had a different different driver take us to the game and take us home the next day. So uh, hopefully travel is a little bit more smooth than, uh, than we had. And we can go back to the pandemic being the biggest guys, biggest concern for these guys on the buses. Yeah, the, the best part. Um, well, I mean, there are a lot of best parts of that story, but <laughs> the part that I always loved was uh, our coach was like, what is going on? And the guy goes, I'm sorry. I thought we were in Nashville. And our coach was like, do they let you drive through the airport in Nashville? <laughs> like, it's clearly an airport. <laughs> you can't, it doesn't matter what city we're in. Um, but anyway, uh, that is just some of the fun you can have while busing to college athletics. Um, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, we do have Xavier games to talk about. Uh, not that we want to, uh, but Xavier was in action twice this week for the first time in forever. Um, first on Saturday, they um, hosted the Yukon Huskies and lost to 72 to 80. And then uh, last night, Wednesday night, or Tuesday night, today's Wednesday, um, they went to Carnseca Arena and lost 93-84 to the St. John's Red Storm. So first of all, in the Yukon game, uh, Braden, what went wrong for Xavier in, in that game? And, and kind of what do the numbers tell us um, was their main issue? Don't just say everything. <laughs> I'll try not to, but the numbers tell us um, we scored enough points for the win here and 72 points. That's good for just over a point per possession. But UConn was able to get 1.14 points per possession. And I feel like that's the, the really telling thing there. Um, you know, Zach Fremantle went off. He went for 30. He was taking a lot of shots, but he was the only thing we had going for a large part of that game. So we were giving him the ball a lot. Uh, Nate Johnson had 14, and that was the only other guy in double figures. But I mean, for UConn, RJ Cole came off the bench and just lit us up. He went for 24 and could, could do no wrong, pretty much. Uh, he had seven assists and only one turnover. But UConn as a team shot 11 to 26 from three. Um, and it's not like they were just scalding hot and we couldn't get near them. They hit a lot of wide open threes, a lot of wide open mid-range jumpers, and a lot of wide open layups. Um, they just pretty much were able to do whatever they wanted to. And, you know, X, the offense wasn't terrible, but they hopped out to an early lead. Um, the biggest lead we had in the game was 16 to 7, uh, about seven minutes in. And then we just kind of got it handed to us the rest of the game. We got it close but then shrank out of it um, as the second half wore on. And yeah, the defense just was not able to do anything to deter uh, Connecticut. They had everybody rolling. I mean, Polly was hitting, Whaley was hitting, um, Acock Acock, who the commentators pronounced his name like cowards. Um, he went for seven points and had barely played so far this season. So uh, they, they had everybody rolling and we could not do anything to catch them. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the huge issue was not only did UConn shoot 11 of 26 from three, um, they were also able to get back 30% of their own misses and kind of the point of the pack line defense is if they do miss you, you are going to be the ones rebounding, but, um, we got the worst of both worlds, um, because they got wide open threes, but they also, if they miss them, got the rebound uh, a significant portion of the time. Uh, so Xavier was able to get back into this and um, tied it at 49-49 in the second half. Uh, Joel, what was, uh, what was, I mean, how, how did Xavier's rotation factor into this game? I know we'll talk about the rotation a lot with the St. John's game, um, but what did we see there in the second half that, that maybe, um, contributed to Xavier falling out of the game. 
you know, we're not splitting the atom here, but basically Xavier came back into the game when they were able to get stops. Uh, from down six at the half, then for the next nine minutes, Xavier only allowed 11 points. And at one point in time, they strung together seven straight stops to crawl back into that game. So just looking at the numbers for Xavier, pretty much whoever you throw in there is going to be uh, somewhere between decent and well above average on offense. I think where Coach Steele needs to lean in on his rotations are who can get consistent stops for Xavier. You saw that they were able to do that against UConn uh, for a big portion of the second half there, and that brought the game um, you know, from a 60% win probability for UConn all the way down to about a 40% when Xavier came back in it just because they were able to get stops and slowly crawl back in on offense. Um, but like Braden pointed out, everybody from UConn's starters to their phallically named bench stars were able to get def- get buckets against Xavier's poorest defense. And, you know, that, that spurt brought us back into the game and then uh, we immediately started surrendering easy buckets. UConn scored nine points in their next three possessions. And that was pretty much the end of it. So it's not, you know, about rotations in the way we traditionally look at it. It's how five guys can play together on the offensive end and fill roles. We just need somebody out there who can make life difficult for the opposing offense. And too often in the last week, we haven't had that. Gotcha. Okay. Um. Yeah, Brad, what, what uh, do you have to add there? Well, for a long time, the guy who was doing that, especially in the post, had been Jason Carter. Um, His offensive numbers are not always glamorous. They had been respectable up until the last couple games. I mean, he posted a 12-0 rating against Connecticut. That's not good. Um, But he'd been playing good defense, but he has not been since we came back from this last COVID break, and that has more exposed just how truly awful on defense Zach Fremantle is. Um, When Fremantle doesn't have somebody down there to help him, he pretty much gets turned at every possible opportunity. And that has shown in the last couple of games, he just cannot stay with somebody inside. If they move a big out to about 15 feet, he's too slow to stay with them out there. And teams have been able to work off of that to get open shots, either under the bucket with his man or with somebody cutting off of his man because a guard has to help. So a lot of our problem has been that Carter's defense has shrunk and that has magnified the problems that Fremantle has on defense. And I know we've been talking about Fremantle's defense almost from the first couple games, how slow he looked out around the perimeter, and he has made zero improvement on that. Okay, um, looking around kind of the Big East here, um, because there were uh, several, I think, notable games. I, I think the two we really want to touch on as it concerns looking forward toward March was um, – <laughs> Uh, UConn um, hosted Providence. Uh, it was their 200th win at Gamble Pavilion, I think. Anyway, James Booknight came back um, and looked really good. He he dropped 18 without breaking much of a sweat. Um, and also, Booknight, um, you guys missed it last week. It's Brandon and Brevin Knight's little brother, um, obviously, the B names, Brevin, uh, <laughs> Brandon, Book. Um, <laughs> and the odd thing is, the age gap between Brandon and Book Knight um, is like 19 years, which is not as big as the age gap uh, in our family. So that's weird. Uh, anyway, but he looked really good. He had 18. Um, UConn kind of ran away and hid uh, against Providence, who um, did not get much from Nate Watson or David Duke. And then the other one is uh, Creighton against Nova. Creighton um, hammered Nova. It was 86 to 70. It was not that close though um it was not as close as a 16 point margin would indicate um creighton just demolished them uh and that was a huge result because creighton has been up and down a little bit they've been scrapping a little bit in the last few weeks and for them to get a result like that um i think is probably going to shoot them back up toward uh the higher lines Uh, they're in the, the tournament but um they're going to be closer to protected seating now, uh, especially if they can take care of business the rest of the way. They only have DePaul um, at Xavier, at Villanova, and Butler 
uh, left. If they can pick up three more wins, um, which Ken Palm projects they do, um, I think they could be a protected seed depending on what goes on elsewhere and what goes on, obviously, at Madison Square Garden. Uh, but anyway, um, back to Xavier, unless you guys had anything to add on on other Big East results. No. OK, uh, back to Xavier, um, because we put out a poll um, because we like to have fun <laughs> uh, on Twitter. What is Xavier's biggest problem right now? Um, and, and so uh, I don't know the, the live results, but uh, Joel, um, obviously the runaway winner was defense. So why don't you walk us through what exactly has gone wrong with Xavier's defense in the last two games? Well, they've allowed opponents to shoot 40 percent from behind the arc. Uh, that's a big herder. The other thing is Xavier is statistically by rebound percentage, still the number one defensive rebounding team in the big East. They hold their opponents to about 25% on the offensive glass, which leads the league. Uh, the problem is they haven't really done that the last couple of games. St. John's got about 26% of theirs. UConn got about a, 31% of theirs. And Xavier is not going to be a team that's going to get free possessions or stops off of turnovers. They're currently below 300th of the nation in defensive turnover rate. They are going to allow teams to get shots up. And when that happens, the only way Xavier is going to be successful, especially the quality of shots they've been allowing lately, is to force other teams to go one and done because it's almost a guarantee that a team's going to get a shot up for, against Xavier unless they just shoot themselves in the foot with a silly turnover, which St. John's did a couple of times last night. And, you know, Xavier has to give them one shot, and that's it. The other thing uh, that I think kind of goes under the radar about defense a little bit is uh, somebody on Twitter uh, hit us up and asked basically, how can, how can defense – be a factor or be a a problem coming off a of COVID break. Uh, the problem with defense in the Big East, as opposed to like the high school you played for or your favorite open run, is that it's a lot more about executing the system than it is picking your guy and locking him down. So especially with a pack line, it's about showing a hand to help blocking off driving lanes and knowing who is recovering where. And that comes from endless reps in the gym. Teams go through as much work on the defensive end as they do executing their offensive sets just because one gap, one lapse, one guy not knowing his assignment and executing it leads to the kind of shots that we've been watching teams take against Xavier right now. So it's it's frustrating, and I know people hate to hear, oh, it's because they've been together eight times in the last six weeks or whatever, and uh, you know they don't want to hear the the COVID pause excuse. But the reality is the defense is just as much a part of that as anything else. And when uh, the system isn't executed well, it doesn't matter how good your individual defenders are, or you know how much they want it, or whatever your favorite cliche is. Uh, one dude missing his rotation or running to the wrong spot leads to wide open layups. Isaiah Moore getting lots of awesome dunks for his YouTube reel and guys shooting, uh, you know, warm up three pointers, which is what we've seen since Xavier came back from this last pause. Um, if I could just cut in for a second here, why do we all agree to pronounce I-S-A-I-H Isaiah? That is, that's not, that's not phonics. That's not how that's pronounced. It's Issa Moore. Okay. I'm 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 sick of this. I'm sick of this charade. I'm stopping it right now. Okay. Spell it right or I'm saying it the way it's spelled. Um anyway, Brad, what was your point? And hopefully it's more uh relevant than that. That's <laughs> very colonial of you. Um I think part of one of the things that gets overlooked a little bit, especially with the rebounding is that Brian Griffin has been out for those two games. He is a plus defender and a plus plus rebounder. Um, he definitely could have given Jason Carter a break in there. Jason Carter desperately needs a break, um, has not been good recently. Unfortunately, he's out. Uh, Steele tried to go with Deontay Miles and apparently was not pleased with 
uh, what he got from him. And Danny Ramsey, I hope, is still alive. Um, I've not seen proof of life, but his mom hasn't tweeted anything about like getting a ransom note or anything either. So uh, that's part of the issue there. Griffin is the team's best rebounder. He can't play. He's their best interior defender and he can't play. Um, So that's going to lead to some of these issues. And again, a lot of this comes down to Zach Fremantle's just inability to guard anyone at the moment. Um, And like Joel said, that does have a lot to do with rotations, but it also has a lot to do with just he's getting lazy. Um, He got beat. A couple of those dunks were just because he did not rotate in time and got to watch somebody, uh, however you choose to pronounce his first name, nearly rip the rim out of the backboard twice while he kind of bemusedly looked on. And that's just not going to get the job done. Brad, it's not how about about how I choose to pronounce it. It's how things are spelled. Okay. English language has a set of rules. Um, Yeah, but those rules we generally waive for proper nouns. I mean, look for no farther than um, how we're going to pronounce the Y's and Kiki Tandy. And then, you know, Dylan Adai Wusu, we're just letting him decide how his name's saying or being said. Uh, you know, there's there's plenty of guys going all the way back to the days of Keenan McCardle versus Keenan McCardell that, you know, dictate the phonics of their own names to him. And I, for one... If you're listening, Isaiah Moore, and you're deciding which of us to punch in the face, uh, it's Brian. I, Joel, think you should get to decide how to pronounce your own name. And Brian, there's a certain relative of ours who you're being a lot like right now, and I don't think you're flattered by the comparison. Is it Brad? No. Oh, gosh. I don't know why I was being coy about that. You know she doesn't listen. She probably doesn't even know we have a podcast. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Oh my God! Somehow, somehow worse than Brad. Jeez! Um, right? Shouts to our extended family. Um, <laughs> uh, Braden, why don't you walk us through? Because uh, defense has not really been the only thing to go wrong for Xavier. Um, what has been the issue as far as shooting goes? We're taking bad shots uh, and they're not going in some of the time. Uh, you know, against. Uh, St. John's, you know, Nate Johnson going cold. Bad time for that to happen. He was 2 of 11. Um, You know, it happens. But we did also, for some reason, take 43 pointers against a team who does not defend the two-point field goal well at all. Um, So God only knows why we did that. Um, And we were talking about it last night, uh, about Paul Scruggs' determination in garbage time to get that 40th three-pointer off. I don't know why he wanted to do that. But, uh, yeah, we shot 27% from three against St. John's. I mean, against UConn, uh, you know, it was a more respectable showing, but 10 of 27, but Fremantle took seven, uh, Johnson took seven, and then Scruggs was cold, and uh, nobody else really did a whole lot from out there. But, you know, the shot selection against St. John's uh, was not the greatest, taking that many threes against a team that can't defend the two. And then... You know, the, the stuff from inside the arc, uh, I mean, Fremantle's been doing well, but then some of our guards have not been doing too well. Um, Scruggs has not looked good on offense the last couple games. But, you know, the, the offense, the ball's not been moving the same it was. I mean, the assists are there, but it's not moving at the same pace, and we're not, we weren't really stretching St. John's defense that much. So, you know, the defense is definitely the bigger issue for us, but our offense has not been... Uh, stellar from beyond the arc the last couple games brad i want want to push back against most of that um the ball has moved stupid come on (laughs) brady the ball the ball has moved well the reason xavier took 43s last night and i tried to explain this to i think everyone on twitter is because they were there and those are the shots xavier should have been taking um they weren't taking forced threes they weren't taking 30 footers they weren't taking hand-in-the-face three-pointers, St. John's chose to let Xavier live and die behind the arc and try to take away the interior as much as they could. They didn't do that terribly successfully. Xavier shot 57.6% inside inside the arc, which is pretty good. Um, It's For a game, it's not setting the world on fire, but it's definitely respectable. But those 43-pointers were absolutely there for Xavier to take, and they should have taken them. Nate Johnson's not going to go two for 11. Paul Scruggs isn't going to go one for six. And Kunkel's not going to go one for seven. 
in most games. But those shots had to be taken because that's what the defense was getting, was giving. If they make three or four more three-pointers, that changes St. John's defense to the point where Xavier can get the ball inside better or at least set things up. But, I mean, you have to take them. Some of them, most of them, were off a good rotation and they took good shots. But you can't – This not like this was dribbling, dribbling Najee, Marshall, Quentin, Good, and three-pointers. You got to take some of these. The 40th one was probably frosting, but they got to take the shots. They were there. If Nate Johnson shoots like he normally does, he's six for 11 from behind the arc, and it's an entirely different game. That they didn't go back, but he didn't. Wow. I think shots gone in, that would have been better for our offense. Let me write this one down. What bothers me about these threes is that some some of them were there. A lot of them were like there adjacent. We had a lot of one pass possessions. Um, but our best offensive player on the night was eight of 12 from inside the arc. And when he got touches, regardless of whether or not he ended up taking the shot, the offensive possession went better. We spent a lot of time passing from wing to point and point to wing and wing to point and point to wing and then shooting an open ish three from behind or near the arc when we did so much better when we threw the ball into the post the the driving lanes i'll agree they choked off and they did a good job paul scruggs was somehow four or seven from inside the arc it seemed like all seven of those attempts were through six or seven saint john's defenders they they smothered the drive they did not smother the post and the post was working even when the outcome didn't happen on the post. Uh, I don't think St. John's forced Xavier to take 43s. I don't think the circumstances of the game dictated that. And at some point in time, you just got to realize it's windy in the gym tonight. Maybe we throw it to the guy who keeps making layups and see if that's a viable offensive strategy. And I guess X was waiting until you know the third half to try that one out. I think the other thing too, St. John's pressed for 40 minutes. Um, they made 34 shots last night, which means they had 34, at least 34 opportunities to deploy their press, not counting dead ball turnovers, which um, it's hard to find on a box score. Anyway, Xavier only turned the ball over eight times. So if you're breaking a press that consistently, uh, I just find it hard to believe that you can't find a better shot than a three pointer, um, especially when. <laughs> Well, yeah, um, but I, I, I agree, Xavier. I think the issue last night was the offense ran outside the arc way too often, um, and, and there were, I mean, you know, I mean, there were three or four po- strings of three or four possessions in a row where the ball would not go inside the arc, um, and so you can say, oh, the threes were there to be taken all you want, but um, at a certain point, they shot well from two; they just weren't weren't trying to force the ball inside uh, when maybe they should have. Um, I have it on good authority. You can beat St. John's without making any threes, actually. Um, so, yeah, um, that's true. Who knows? Anyway, here's a stat. Um, under Mike Anderson, St. John's has only won one game where they forced fewer than 10 turnovers um, before last night, uh, and it was last year against – Creighton when St. John's shot 62% from three and Creighton shot 14% from three. Uh, So it's really rare that they win a game turning an opponent over that infrequently. Um, So, I mean, you have to concede something went horribly wrong on the offensive end for that to happen. Uh, But anyway, um, that's not the extent of the issues we've uh, seen or the issues we gave before. Right. The issues we gave you a chance to pick um, because there's also um, people were had questioned about the effort last night. So, Joel, why don't you go into that? Um, What are people seeing there? To me, I think defense and um, and a little bit shot selection were the main issues I thought that they had last night. But anyway, um, what do you got on that one? Okay, I have dredged up live results from the poll. So um, if you're listening to this, go vote. I'm just kidding. The poll will be closed by the time we get this out. But 62.7% of you thought defense was the problem. 
coaching was 13.6%, effort 12%, and shooting 11.6% as of 5.47 p.m. on February 17th. Uh, but yeah, effort. I, this is kind of a mixed bag. I think um, the effort was there at times for different players. Uh, I think Paul Scruggs is generally a guy who is going to leave at least 40 minutes of effort out there for you, regardless of if he gets 40 minutes of playing time. He certainly burned through his share of calories last night. Uh, Nate Johnson was another guy who was kind of all over the floor. Uh, Adam Kunkel, Colby Jones, I was impressed with their uh, scrappiness. Colby Jones had a heck of a game, and a lot of it was because uh, he just kept going at him. Uh, you know, when, when tactics failed, Colby Jones was – consistently willing to get into the teeth of the defense. Uh, he got to the line as much as anybody on Xavier. He got inside the arc. He was super successful, and a lot of that was just uh, his direct style of play and unwillingness to be turned back. What I wasn't super impressed with was the one exchange that I think stuck out in everybody's mind where Paul Scruggs and Nate Johnson combined to tip a ball away uh, near half court late in the shot clock for uh, St. Jonathan's. Uh, Paul Scruggs dove, couldn't get there. Uh, Nate Johnson laid out, ended up in a little bit of a scramble. They played tippy-tap with it. It rolled to Zach Fremantle's feet, and I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here and say that his heart was in scooping the ball up and getting the fast break started because, like, a total of nine dudes ended up on the floor going after that loose ball, and uh, Zach bent over like he had dropped a gallon of milk in the grocery, and a St. John's guy came skidding to his feet and claimed possession, called a timeout, and they ended up turning that second chance into a basket. And, uh, you know, it was one of those games where every time Xavier looked like they had just a little bit of momentum, a 50-50 ball would go St. John's way, and they'd end up uh, sticking a freaking three. But I think what I've narrowed it down to here, and this is me projecting what I believe about these guys onto the – 40 minutes a week I see of them. So uh, take this with as much salt as you can muster. But to me, Nate Johnson, or I'm sorry, uh, Zach Fremantle and Jason Carter are both really good as like your second toughest forward. They both have that kind of scrabbiness that you see out of a guy whose big brother is also in the lineup. Uh, I think last year, Tyreek Jones played the role of that big brother. And uh, those dudes knew they could get in there and get chippy. And no matter what happened, uh, Tyreek would flex and snarl, and that would, you know, end the debate. But now we got a lot of like moderate chippiness without a lot of flex and snarl behind it. And Xavier is missing that really, really badly, as well as like the freaking double double that Tyreek averaged. But his mentality in the middle of the the floor is something that I think. Uh, you know, Xavier, Xavier needs this year and doesn't have just yet. Uh, I'm not, I don't want to be one of those people who say like Tyreek Jones wouldn't let this team lose. Tyreek Jones let the team lose a lot last year. Uh, that wasn't on him. And I don't think it's on these guys not wanting it this year. It's just, they didn't quite, they don't quite have the personality man that Tyreek was to, to back up every play they make in the middle. And the plays that need backed by a tough guy just aren't getting made right now. I think that if we were doing a St. John's podcast and you were predisposed of the same personality you have now, you would call Zach Fremantle a pretend tough guy. Not um, my and there it is, folks, bald Skip Bayless makes his appearance. No <laughs> wow. Let's uh, yank that clip out, put it on your Twitter. You got your hot take out there. Good job. They're going to get a lot of clicks off that one. All engagement's good engagement, right, Brad? No, no. I mean, we've gotten some engagement, especially the last couple of weeks. That was definitely not good engagement. Um, a lot of people need to moderate the alcohol intake before hopping on Twitter to talk with their favorite newly verified Xavier account. Um, if only because a lot of the spelling has looked like Isaiah Moore's first name. But... I, <laughs> yeah, I Joel's exactly right. Xavier has two tough guys on the team, I think, in Paul Scruggs and Nate Johnson. 
but you need that big monster tough guy in the middle and they don't have that um and yeah it's a little bit it is hot takery to say zach freeman is a pretend tough guy he's clearly got some heart as a freshman he stuck game winning shots he gets in there yeah i'd like to see him dive last night i was really aggravated i definitely yelled at my television um that's going to happen though in four years of playing college basketball you're going to see guys not dive when you want them to that happens but they do need somebody in there with that just nasty mentality and you know maybe Fremantle and Carter are just a little bit too nice to fully have that maybe Fremantle needs to grow into it a little bit more uh Jason Carter clearly can't have it with that haircut that's just the law yeah if you're mean with that haircut they're like nope gotta shave it or spike it or something man um yeah, so um, speaking of which, because um, it, it kind of gets to um, the other thing that, that people, I guess it was actually the second most selected um, most selected option was the, the coaching, the, the rotations. Um, Brad, why don't you go into this? Because there were a couple of things I think last night people really uh, key keyed in on. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm taking a break because everyone listening is going to laugh for probably 10 seconds. So now we're back. Um, you're welcome. Uh, I didn't want you to miss any content while you were guffawing. But anyway, Brad, why don't you just kind of walk us through that? Uh, yeah, I mean, we might as well start with Kiki because that's what everybody is talking about. I mean, there are people who watch Kentucky basketball who tweeted Kiki last night just because the Lord compelled them. Um, I don't know. Joel tweeted during the game that he's not sure what Kiki isn't doing. You know, it can't be the lack of defensive acumen because nobody on the team was playing defense last night. It can't be the lack of, I think lack of toughness was the other thing you said because he got out there and and scrapped after it. He created two steals in four minutes. Um, You know, he came out, I felt like Kiki brought a spark to the game, but you could see the exact time when he was going to come out of the game and not come back in was his second two-point attempt was one pass out of the corner, and he took an 18-foot jumper across the court from Travis Steele off of zero dribbles. He just put it right up, and it didn't go in. He took. He ended up taking four shots in four minutes, and when he took that second and what would turn out to be his last two-point attempt, uh, Steele threw both hands up, very clearly frustrated. I don't know what they go over in practice, but if I had to observe things based on the context, one of the things I would assume he has told Kiki not to do is take 18 foot jumpers off of no dribbles and one pass. And that's exactly what he did. Four shots in four minutes and he was done. Uh, Two assists, two steals. The dude's just not coming back next year. That's all there is to it. Um, His Xavier career is going to end playing single digit minutes for the rest of this season maybe getting in the tournament game and being done um, for whatever reason, Travis Steele has decided that he's not part of the team. For some reason, Dwan Odom uh, was also not part of the team very much last night. My Ken Palm box score tells me that Dwan played five minutes. I can remember maybe one of those um, where he got off an end of the shot clock jumper that he kind of had to take. That was the only shot he took. And that was the only thing that kept him from the personal foul trillion. So uh, there wasn't a lot guys not named Colby Jones for Xavier came off the bench to play 22 minutes and score six points and put up two assists for whatever reason in a game against a team that forces a really high pace all of the time. And in a second game off of a long COVID break that followed a long COVID break before that Travis Steele decided he was going to play six dudes. Um, it did not work. I don't think anybody would argue that the rotations were great this game. Joel, I'm going to let you talk about the Paul Scruggs sub because you were pretty heated about that last night, and I think you'll probably be able to explain that a little better than I'd be able to. Yeah, that one peed me right out. So a couple things. The one kind of big caveat here is you never know uh, with the Rona. We're coming off a big break. It's possible that – you know, Dwan's not feeling as well as he'd like, or CJ still can't take a deep breath or whatever. So uh, by, the, by the same token, something's got to give. One thing that's got nothing to do with that at all is that Coach Steele took Paul Scruggs out of the game with three minutes and 31 seconds left in the first half when he picked up his second foul. One thing you need to know about Paul Scruggs is he averages three fouls 
per 40 minutes of gameplay. So even carrying two fouls there, statistically, if he played every second for the rest of the game, he was likely to pick up one or two fouls. It's just a hair over one and a half, but uh, I don't think they assess half fouls. So when Paul came out of the game, uh, Xavier had a win probability of about 40%. That immediately took a freaking nosedive from which it never recovered, uh, bottoming out at about 15% right before the end of the half. I tweeted when it happened, just so we're not doing hindsight being 2020. I tweeted, Paul Scruggs has two fouls. The coach should leave him in the game. The coach chose not to leave him in the game. Uh, you know, statistically, there was no reason to take Paul out there. It's a, it's a reflexive auto sub based on the, the situation. Too many coaches do two fouls in the first half. You're coming out. Paul Scruggs, he's a senior. You're on the road in front of zero fans in a not must-win game, but it'd be nice to win game. Trust the man. Trust the man to play it out. If he picks up his third foul, if he picks up his fourth foul, you know, we are doing no more damage to the team's winning, the chances of winning this game than we are just letting him sit there and watch St. John's pour it on against his less talented teammates. And that's exactly what happened. Xavier's win probability never got back up over 25% after that. Uh, they were chasing the game, and it came down to basically that that 10-2 to 2 run that St. John's went on uh, when Paul Scruggs came out. You erase that, and I'm not saying that, you know, it would have been a one-point game at half, but it was just such a predictable collapse and a predictable result of an overtly and immediately bad decision by the coaching staff, particularly the lead member of the coaching staff, that, that it hacked me off and disappointed me in real time. And you can look back at the, the box score and see where that sabotaged the game for Xavier. And it was a needless and self-inflicted wound. Uh, um, hard disagree, but we're going to move on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, we got uh, a few questions off of Twitter. Um, so the first one is from uh, Craig James underscore 28. Sorry, at Craig James underscore 28. I'm trying to be sensitive here. Why does Jason Carter still start? So, Joel, um, you are the uh, president, treasurer, founding member, and um, loan member, I think, of the official Paul Scruggs fan club. Um, although there are a lot of people who like Paul Scruggs, or Jason Carter, I mean. Anyway, um, what do you got here? What Does Jason Carter need to still start? Um, how would Xavier go about? Yeah, uh, talk about Jason Carter. Uh, there are two reasons Jason Carter still starts, and it's basically two factors of the same reason, and that is that Zach Fremantle cannot function as the only big man on the floor. Uh, thanks to EvanMaya.com, uh, founded and run by a Butler fan, which isn't my favorite thing, but it is what it is. Uh, this guy... Uh, basically goes through the play-by-play -play data or has an algorithm that does it for you and breaks things down. And one of the things he does is break down five-man lineups. Every single one of Xavier's most effective five-man lineups features either Jason Carter as the lone big man, which surprised me, or a double pivot. Uh, the top two most efficient lineups that have gotten at least 15 possessions on each end of the floor for Xavier this year are anchored by Jason Carter and Brian Griffin in the middle of the floor. The next two are Jason Carter, Zach Fremantle, Nate Johnson, Dwan Odom, and Paul Scruggs, and Jason Carter, Zach Fremantle, Nate Johnson, Colby Jones, and Paul Scruggs. Then you get the first lineup with Zach Fremantle and not Jason Carter, and it's Zach Fremantle, Brian Griffin, Nate Johnson, Paul Scruggs, and remarkably, Kiki Tandy. You don't get to a single Zach Fremantle big man lineup until you get to the 10th and 12th lineups out of the 12 that have played at least 15 possessions on both ends of the floor. Uh, the 10th most efficient is Zach Fremantle and four smaller dudes. Uh, that is a negative for the team's adjusted efficiency margin. So that puts them about 20 points of adjusted efficiency behind where they are on the season. It's just a, a 
a real black hole of a lineup for Xavier. And then the least efficient lineup they have is Zach Fremantle, Nate Johnson, Colby Jones, Adam Kunkel, and Paul Scruggs. That is uh, five talented guys who don't work well together. That team is that lineup is a minus 45 adjusted team efficiency margin, which basically says that they are uh, about 70 points below where the, the team normally sits. Um, you know, Zach Fremantle does a good job of the things that he does a good job of. And we kind of discussed some of what we perceive to be his weaknesses at this point, but he's a little bit of a, I don't know what you would call in soccer, a flair player. He's kind of a, a luxury because he can score you a bucket in a lot of different ways. He's got a, a deadly mid-range game and a good jump shot, but he's not a guy who is going to dominate the lane all by himself in a way that you saw uh, any of the composite members of like Jalmashan Farnolds or Tyreek Jones doing in his heyday. Uh, he needs a bruiser in there with him. So that's, you know, the, the first facet of the thing is Zach Fremantle can't, be an effective lone big man. The second facet is uh, Ben Stanley's knee exploded and Brian Griffin still has the Rona or contacts tracing problems or whatever it is that kept him out of these last two games. Uh, if I were in charge, which I'm not, and there's a million reasons for that, but I might be tempted to saddle Brian Griffin up and just ride him until his legs fall off. He's uh, a solid offensive player, but what he gives Xavier that they don't have in any other other big men is a guy who's just a bully in the middle. Uh, he goes in there and throws bodies around. He blocks a lot of shots. He cleans the glass on both ends. Uh, he can be a little bit foul prone. He gets called for about four fouls every 40 minutes, but I would, uh, you know, I'd play him until he fouled out every game because Xavier needs his his force in there. And without it, um, Jason Carter still starts, Craig. Okay. Um, so there you have it. Uh, anyway, um, we have uh, at MethodMan underscore X looking at the bubble. Do we need three or four wins to get locked in? Um, who has the numbers on this one? I know it's one of you three. <laughs> I do. Um, we're running a little slow now. We're running a little short on time, but to the basic answer to that question is Xavier needs three if they want to be sure, and they cannot afford to lose to Butler. So they got to beat Butler. Most likely they're going to have to beat Butler and then win three more. They could conceivably, with the right balance of results, just beat Butler and win two more. But if they want to be absolutely locked in, it's got to be Butler and three more. They cannot lose that Butler game. If they lose the Butler game, it's onto the bubble, and it's puckering up the whole rest of the way. Um, that would be devastating to Xavier's wins above bubble number, which is somewhere between 0.4 and 1 right now, depending on where you like to take your numbers from. That leaves them on the upper edge of the bubble for now, but with very, very little margin. Two losses um, in any of the games that they have left coming up will erase that entire one number. Losing to Butler would do it almost in just one shot. So they got to beat Butler and then probably win three more. Um, I wrote an article about this that we could point Method Man to um, earlier today, but that's the basic gist of it. They got to beat Butler. They got to win three after that, or it is going to be a fraught selection Sunday. Yeah, I think uh, winning the worst three games Xavier has on their schedule, um, which Butler's one of them, puts them at like 57%, which uh, for me, that's that's bubble territory right there. That's like last four in kind of stuff um and the last one is uh from at jnsut i don't know if that's it's roughly as phonetic as isaiah moore's first name uh, but anyway uh, 68 which what a disappointment uh, anyway uh why does adam k i'm assuming he needs adam kunkel uh keep getting so much time give it to Dwan and kiki um brad just real quick uh the numbers on adam kunkel um and, and why he has earned this kind of playing time. Um, because he's a better basketball player than Dwan Odom or Kiki Tandy. Um, up until yesterday, which I know we can't just throw games out, he was shooting the ball really well after his slow start. Uh, he had a terrible game yesterday, just like everybody else did. But that still made his offensive rating very similar. It's better than Dwan's. It's just marginally worse than Kiki's. He has the lowest guard turnover um, percentage on the team. He leads the team in steal rate. 
Also, he can play defense, which is a thing that Xavier cannot really do. So since he doesn't like to let his guys score points on the other end, and neither Dwan nor Kiki has demonstrated a great aptitude for that, he's going to keep getting the playing time until one of them can demonstrate that they can either score a three-pointer every time, um, what we'll call the Dave Vance rule, or that they can play some defense. Uh, right now, Kunkel brings a lot of effort, a lot of defense, and he takes care of the ball well. So he's going to keep getting that time until Dwan or Kiki knocks him out of it, and neither of them have done it yet, frankly. Uh, counterpoint, Dwan Odom's block rate is uh, almost the same as Jason Carter and Zach Fremantle's. Uh, so he blocks shots. Um, Maybe he's that, that bully in the middle we need. Yeah, I, I think Dwan Odom, power forward, is at, at obviously where we need to go. Uh, speaking of power forwards, um, our, our quick hit here uh, to wrap up. Um, and this one's special for Braden, uh, but after uh, Marcellus Earthquake Erlington went off against Xavier, um, who I know Braden has a soft spot in his heart for, as do I. Um, who's an opponent who destroyed your team, and it doesn't have to be Xavier, but um, just, you know, went off against your team, but you don't actually mind them. So, Joel, um, Brad is going to have to take a while to try and think of anyone he doesn't hate, um, regardless of their team. Why don't you start us here? Uh, not Jimmy Benny, who everybody hates. Uh, I'm going to pick UNC Charlotte's Lee Meyer Goldwire. The, you know, he, he played, uh, back in the A-10 days. I thought he was a, a really good player. He never bothered me that much. And I think what it all comes down to with old Lee Meyer is his parents just really understood the way that the English language works and Lee Meyer Goldwire it just rolls off the tongue. Uh, phonetically, it's beautiful. It has a certain, you know, the accents and the rhyming, like the emphasis is on the same syllable than first name and last name. Uh, I don't know why anyone would not want to say Lee Meyer Goldwire as much as they can. Lee Meyer Goldwire was always a really good shooter. Uh, he averaged 18.6 points per game as a senior. He certainly had his share of good games against Xavier. Uh, but as long as I got to keep saying his name, man, I was just happy to watch the man go. I was a fan of the name uh, Sir Valiant Brown <laughs> from the, the A-10 days at uh, George Washington. Um, but Lee Meyer, Goldwire, all-timer. Uh, Braden, why don't you uh, – who you got? Um, I've actually gone with a Xavier-related one, and it's just the entire 2008 UCLA team. Uh, X ran into them in the Elite Eight and just got destroyed. There wasn't a lot X was going to be able to do about it, and it was one of the few tournament games X has lost, uh, where I just kind of went away from that and was like, you know what? Not a lot you're going to do about that, and good on UCLA. Um, just a quick thing about Erlington, though. I felt like uh, what we all missed last night was seeing Erlington and Ramsey go at it, because clearly the two thickest dudes in the Big East. Um, and it's a matchup that we all deserved and we all needed, and, you know, Steele and Anderson could not make it happen, and that was selfish of them. Yeah, yeah I, I was let down. Uh, Brad, who do you have? Uh, this is not going to be real popular for the rest of our Cleveland fans, but <clears throat> I have always been a fan of Steph Curry. Um, that's not going to be a surprise to anyone who knows my personality at all. <laughs> when he makes a three-pointer and doesn't even watch to see if it's going to go in because he's already taunting the opposing bench, um, that gives me feelings I'm not, I don't like to talk about at parties. So yeah, I love watching Steph. I was happy when the Cavs beat him for sure, but, uh, anybody who's willing to pull up from 40 feet and start talking smack before the ball goes through the net, uh, is definitely my kind of dude. Wow. See, when I see Steph Curry, um, I want to see if I can choke him with his own dumb mouthpiece, but that's just me. Uh, anyway, we're not going to. <laughs> that was a, that's a terrible pick <laughs> unbelievable wow um i'm reeling here um i'm gonna go with uh actually a dude uh i always liked marcus foster at creighton uh he did hit the game winner against xavier in the uh big east tournament semifinal in 2017 um which was a gutting loss because jp had hit a huge shot right before that um but i always really liked the way he played he was a smart player wasn't necessarily one of these dudes who's like a one and done super athlete, but um, 
I really like Marcus Foster. I actually like Crane's whole 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 program except for the same dumb white dude who shoots threes that they keep recruiting. Um, looking at you, Ricky Kreklo. Looking at you, Mitch. I know you're the same person. Um, stop, <laughs> stop it! It's ridiculous. The next dude they're gonna have is probably gonna gonna spell his name I S I A H and insist we call him Isaiah. Um, it's just I can't deal with it anymore. Anyway, um, that is uh, that's that that's it for this week. Um, Xavier is going to be back in action. Um, I believe it's Sunday uh, against Butler. Um, assuming they don't pick up another game this week, which I guess um, I've not heard anything about, but they'll be back in action on Sunday. Uh, hosting Butler, hopefully we'll be back with you next week to talk about a Xavier victory uh, because if we're not talking about a Xavier victory, chances are it's going to be even more miserable than this one. Um, so we thank you guys so much for listening and we will catch you next week. <laughs>